John chapter 15, verses 18 through 16, 4. It'll actually be just the first half or so of verse 4. But I've titled this message, Holding Fast in a Hostile World. Holding Fast in a Hostile World. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read this passage together. Just out of reverence for the word of God and attentiveness to his voice in it. Listen to what Jesus says to the church. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated without a cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you, the father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you now as always for your word, and we receive it as your word, believing that it is true and living and active and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it is able to pierce to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we lay all of that bare to you, God. Would you penetrate us and speak as we have need and you have desire to meet that need. And so we ask, as always, you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant, to your people, for your glory. This is all yours, and so move me out of the way, God, and use my voice as your instrument to your glory in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you may have caught right there in verse 19, Jesus said, the world hates you. I told somebody this week, my sermon passage this week is the world will hate you as it hated me. Be encouraged. <laughs> All right, that's a, you will never find that on a Hallmark greeting card. Anywhere you can shop the whole store, all the stores around the country, you'll not find that message on any Hallmark greeting card. You will not hear that out of the mouth of any mother dropping off her kid at the middle school drop-off line. Bye, honey. Have a good day. The world hates you. 
Right? And, you, and you actually, you wouldn't hear this probably in most topical sermon series because few people would really choose that as part of the topic. It's not the sort of encouraging message that we go fishing for, especially um, in American culture. And obviously, this doesn't mean, I say obviously, hopefully this will become obvious if it's not just from reading it. It, This doesn't mean that every non-Christian hates you personally, right? Or that every non-Christian hates every Christian. That's uh, not the point of uh, of the statement. But we also need to remember that this, these chapters um, are what are called the farewell discourse. Jesus is saying farewell to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave. And he's telling them, these are the things you need to know in order to carry on in my absence. They are going to preach what he preached. They're going to do what he did. And as they do in his absence, he's telling them there are certain things I want to be sure you know. I'm going away. Don't, do not let your heart be troubled. You remember that? I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'll send another uh, comforter and counselor. We'll come back around to that in our series on the Holy Spirit. He's got lots that's encouraging to say. But then among that, he says, the world will hate you. The world does hate you. Why does Jesus consider that important? Uh, Why is that an important thing to say in the context of this farewell that the world will hate you? Well, he actually answers that question at the beginning of chapter 16, namely in verse 1. If you caught it there, it says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then in verse 4, um, he says, he kind of, in a little different way, is, uh, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Okay, so this is going to happen. You're, this is going to prove true to you that the world hates you. And I'm telling you so that you remember when it happens, I told you already, and so that you will not fall away. We don't feel... Uh, perhaps the immediate pressure of that, the way Christians do in a lot of parts of the world, and certainly the way the apostles would immediately, and really all of their ministry, they would feel this. There would be the temptation to fall away. And even though we don't feel the kind of heat and the pressure from it in American uh, evangelicalism, there have been lots of leaders, even, prominent people, who have fallen away from the Christian faith in recent years. Some of that comes from the pressure to conform to certain norms of the world. You'll hear um, some of these teachers, worship leaders, musicians, different people who will say in part that they've evolved on certain issues. To sort of come into conformity with the way The world thinks they have, in a certain manner of speaking, loved the world and are not wanted to be hated by the world and have embraced the world's way of thinking and living and so so on. But the fact is, there is something attractive about the world. And there's something attractive about not being hated. Would you agree with that? So when the time comes, and maybe many here 
uh, maybe it won't be as bad as it will be later. Maybe some of you will pass on and go see Jesus before um, it gets really intense. But when the time comes, and there are all, already little soft versions of it, but when the time comes, when for being a Christian you are called the bigot, hateful, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific, uh, on the wrong side of history, and so on and so forth, and, and you feel the pressure to go, no, not me, I'm one of the good ones. I'm not a bigot. I'm not hateful. Okay, I take it back. I've evolved on that issue. When the pressure comes, you remember Jesus told you the pressure will come. And he said in advance some things about the world and its relationship to the church and the exhortation to us not to fall away. So I want to uh, answer two questions that arise um, out of this sort of subject and that are answered in this text about the world's hatred of the church. Number one, why does the world hate Christians? Number two, how should Christians respond to the world's hatred? Now, some people immediately have an answer to question number one, um, and it has to do with ways in which Christians bring it on themselves. That is actually relevant to the subject, and we're going to get to that. But Jesus uh, has another answer that's more immediate and more universal. But why does the world hate Christians? Well, what does Jesus say in answer to that question? Well, first of all, because it says in verse 19, Christians are not of the world. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Throughout the New Testament, the word world is used in a variety of ways. And if you've studied the Bible, you're familiar with that. Um, sometimes it refers to just the physical world, the cosmos. Sometimes it's all the people of the world. And other times it is sort of the system of life that is customary to all the people of the world. That is the, the, the values, the priorities, the mindsets, and so forth of an ungodly world. Uh, uh, values and mindsets and priorities that are opposed to the ways of God. The, the Bible uses the world in that sense. A system of thinking and operating. And we should make note of the fact that there are religious and irreligious expressions of the world system. Sometimes when we think about that, we assume, when we're listening to things like that, we seem that we're the good guys and everybody out there is the bad guy. The world is sort of the secular world or whatever, the radical left and so on. Um, but there are religious expressions of worldliness as well. And you, you can't miss that point or you can't uh, you ought not to miss that point because Jesus and the apostles experienced the wrath and hatred of both Jewish and Roman authorities. And he's speaking immediately to that right here because he says, they'll cast you out of the synagogues 
Their time will come where they'll think when they're persecuting, when they're killing you, they're doing service to God. He's talking about religious people there. But it wasn't limited to religious people, or at least not monotheistic religious people as we think of them. Most everybody in the world at that time was religious in some respect, and the Romans would have been very pagan. But they, Jesus experienced the wrath of both Jewish and Roman authorities, right? The Jewish authorities arrested him and tried him. The Roman authorities uh, sentenced him to death and put him on the cross. And the, and the apostles followed a similar course. The book of Acts is filled with hostility and persecution and hatred toward the apostles from Jewish religious leaders, Jewish political leaders, and from Roman authorities. They have the same story. And it begins almost immediately. They're, uh, they're summoned and threatened in, verse, in chapter 3. They get arrested again and beaten in chapter 4, 5. By uh, the end of chapter 7, you have Stephen being stoned even while his face looks like an angel. Just radiating with goodness. But being nice and kind and joyful uh, didn't somehow calm the, uh, the, the wrath and the hatred of those people who would put him to death. The whole uh, population of them almost, the, the, the whole church is scattered outside of Jerusalem in chapter 8 under persecution. Paul goes, uh, Saul of Tarsus goes pursuing them, chasing them down to bring them back to trial for being Christians in chapter 9 where he's converted. By chapter 12, you have James and Peter put in jail and James is executed. You're not even halfway through the book of Acts. You haven't even gotten to Paul's ministry yet, his missionary journeys, and he started a riot everywhere he went. That is to say, their experience from the outset is almost defined in part by the hatred of both religious Jewish leaders as well as the Roman authorities to them. A world, the, the world mindset, the world system has both religious and irreligious expressions to it. It's a system opposed to God and opposed to Christians who truly follow Jesus because... Christians who truly follow Jesus aren't part of the system. And it infuriates the world. It just infuriates the world. That people won't go along with it. And again, we may be less aware of this contrast because Western civilization has really been built upon Christian principles to such a degree. We still live on the inheritance of so much of that, that even what's embodied in our institutions is more reflective of Christian values in the West than you would find in lots of places in the world. So we may be less aware of it, um, but we're becoming increasingly aware of it, I think, as time goes on. There are ways in which, in the last couple of years, the mask has come off of the beast, so to speak. 
There have been little glimpses of evil just shown for what they really are. It's like somebody's wig blowing off in the wind or whatever, or a toupee or something. Like we weren't supposed to see that, we weren't supposed to hear that, but oops, we did. And, and we, we're, we're, we're getting uh, glimpses of just how opposed the world system, unrestrained, is to the ways of God. And Christians who really follow Jesus are no, not of that system. So that's the first thing. We're not of the world, and so the world hates the church. Secondly, Jesus said the reason the world hates the church is because they hate him. They hate Christ. He touches on that in verses 18, 20, and 21 in, in a certain respect. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things, he says in verse 21, they will do to you on account of my name. They will hate you because they hated me. I know there are reasons, other reasons why people find Christians unlikable. There are things that we do to make ourselves unlikable. I'll get to that in a few minutes. Just don't you worry about that. But the point is, that is not the first answer to the question, and it's not the most important one. Jesus said the world hates the church because it hates Christ. Because at root, the, the, the devil uh, is the enemy of Jesus. And he's, uh, he's been opposed to Christ from the beginning, and he opposes the work of Christ on the earth namely through the church. And so that's what you've got going on at root of all of that is that kind of conflict. They hate the church and will, uh, uh, will take out, express their anger and wrath against Christians or against the church because of their hatred of Christ. I'll illustrate it in this way, and this, uh, this may make a few people uncomfortable to even bring it up, but... Uh, you may have seen some of the news headlines over these last couple of weeks after the uh, draft decision uh, about Roe v. Wade was made, that was leaked, and that became public, and some of the protests that arose because of that, uh, some of that included uh, pro-abortion activists um, posting messages encouraging people to protest at Catholic churches specifically, presumably Catholic because f five of the nine justices are, you know, practicing Catholics. I say presumably, that's probably not altogether it. Um, Jesus has part of the answer that is just a hatred for Christ and therefore a hatred toward the church. But one of those groups organized and went inside a Catholic mass uh, two or three weeks ago, and disrupted the service. Now, and, and had to be escorted out, and there wasn't, uh, wasn't much more to it than that. But did the Catholic Church render a draft decision about abortion? No. Uh, did the Catholic Church change its position about abortion? No. There was nothing 
particularly front page headline newsworthy about the Catholic Church's position on that issue. Their position's been the same as it has been from the very, very beginning, since the first century. Um, but this, these organizations expressed their wrath toward a church service in response to their anger about this draft decision of the Supreme Court. Now, you, you may not like that particular inference I'm making here, but I would say it is an illustration of how the world hates the church because it hates Christ. The, the church is not part of the system, and Christ's ways are not the world's ways. And it's infuriating, and the wrath is poured out toward Christians in a variety of ways. That will, has been true, is true, much more regularly and and in, in much more uh, hostile ways, even this morning in other parts of the world. And Christians who live under the threat of persecution and so on every day for being a Christian. But that's the first question that we need to understand the answer to, we need perspective on, is why is it that Jesus says the world will hate you? And it's because we're not of the world and because they hate Christ. Second, how should we respond to the world's hatred? What should we do in light of that fact? Well, the answer is not, uh, well, I, 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 I'm glad to know that because I was tired of trying to be nice anyway. Let me, real, let me show the real me. <laughs> Let me, let me take my mask off now. That's not the answer, okay? But I would offer two responses to that question. How should we respond to the world's hatred? The fact that the world hates the church. Number one, don't love the world or desire to be loved by the world. Now, this needs to be qualified. When I, like I said, the, way, the, the word world is used in a variety of different ways. The, the John 3.16, if you know one Bible verse in your life, you probably know John 3.16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It means that we don't, that doesn't mean that we don't love the people of the world. We are absolutely supposed to do that. We, we really ideally are supposed to be like Stephen, who even... In the moment of being stoned, have the face of an angel because of a great love for people that just transcends understanding. We're supposed to love the world in that respect. But in terms of the system of the world, don't love the world and don't desire the love or admiration of the world. 1 John 2.15 says, again, coming from the Apostle John, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do not love the world or the things of the world. You'll find those affections for all kinds of worldly things. 
including the admiration and acceptance of the world, you'll find those creeping into your heart over and over and over again, no matter how many times you drive them out. But we're exhorted, do not love the world or the things of the world. James 4.4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so we have to, we have to learn by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to walk this narrow line of loving the people of the world fully, unconditionally, overlooking offenses, not retaliating, not repaying evil for evil, and on and on and on the things that Jesus said. To love people that way without loving the things of the world, the system of the world, the power that the world would offer, and so on, without loving that one iota. And we depend on the Holy Spirit in us to, to empower us that way. But don't love the world or desire to be loved by the world. The second part of that answer would be, uh, don't give the world legitimate reason to dislike you. When, when you hear the question, why does the world hate Christians? Some of the answer that comes immediately to mind, because we hear it a lot, I think, I hear it a lot, well, because Christians are so judgmental and, um, you know, always telling other people how to live, but they don't do it. They're judgmental, they're hypocritical, and so on. They're mean, and things that are true, right, about plenty of professing Christians. There are people for whom that description fits. And not just because um, sometimes people will assign those labels just because you disagree with them or whatever, just because you uh, believe and embrace and live by moral convictions of the Bible and so on. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who are genuinely nasty, whose conduct doesn't seem to conform to the life of Jesus in lots of ways. Don't give the world legitimate reasons to dislike you. That's one of, the, one of the simple things we ought to do, even though the world will hate you anyway. This is the thing. The world, the world as a system hates Jesus and hates the church fundamentally. That is underlying the issue. That mask will come off um, over time universally as, until Jesus returns. That's part of the dynamic of the spiritual conflict uh, going on in the world, the universe that we live in. But don't give them reason to hate you. Live like Jesus lived. Speak like Jesus spoke. Love like Jesus loved. Don't be a hypocrite. Listen, living like Jesus does not mean simply um, that there are certain moral standards that you live by and tell the, whole, the rest of the world to live by. It, but, it, but it also means being people who are humble, gentle, patient, forbearing, non-retaliatory, and so on. Things that are hard to live out. And that's the side of the ledger we don't like a lot of times. 
We don't like imitating Christ to that degree. But that's the sort of life that he calls us to live. And so the point is, imitate him in all of those ways so that there is not any legitimate reason to be unlikable. Don't be unlovely and unlovable. 1 Peter 2.12 says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now catch what this says, because it's really just what I said. Don't, you know, don't be unlovable even though the world's going to hate you anyway. That's really what Peter's getting at. When they speak against you as evildoers, they'll see your good deeds and say there's nothing really to that. The, 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 the charges don't really stick. They'll make the charges anyway. But they'll know they're not legitimate. Give them no reason, no ground for actually making that claim. Keep your conduct so honorable. There's testimony I've read before uh, from one of the early writings of the church. I've read it to you before. Just about that, that testimony of early Christians uh, somewhere in the first century or so of the church um, that they were reviled and hated even though there was no reason for it. They, that people would hate them, couldn't come up with any real reason for hating them. That was the actual experience of the church. And so Im- imitate Jesus in those ways that our conduct is so honorable that there's no legitimacy to any charges that would be leveled against us as evildoers. 1 John 2 verses 4 and 6 says this about uh, living like Jesus Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So uh, again, I'm saying that there, there are sometimes professing Christians do lots of things to bring the wrath upon themselves. And namely, they are the hypocrites and don't live like Jesus lived. Their, their character and conduct just doesn't look like Jesus. They're not the gentle and lowly kind of person that Jesus is. They're not humble and forgiving and gracious and so on. I don't think I'm making that up. I know I'm not talking about any of you in this room. There's just other people you've probably met somewhere who you know would fit that description sometimes, right? But see, if we say we're, if we say we're followers in Jesus, but don't live at all like Jesus, God says we're liars. The world has every reason to call us liars. The world has every reason to call us hypocrites. It has every reason to despise us. God says we're liars if that's the case. May it never be said of us. Because whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that's the, that's the calling upon the church to, to represent, as it were, uh, to embody Jesus on the earth by the Holy Spirit as I said that's really 
uh, main thrust of the Holy Spirit's ministry, manifesting the presence of Jesus on the earth. And so we're called to do that, even as it is certain that that will not meet with the acceptance and love and admiration of a world that is hostile to the things of God. And we've just got to accept that as part of our identity as Christians and our calling, that he is glorified uh, even as we live in the midst of that sort of hostility as people who are uh, gracious and winsome and so forth. We we need to be uh, confident of the fact that um, we will not, in any universal kind of way, I mean, the, the, the church is not going to just, through external means, win the acceptance of the, of the non-Christian world. That's just not going to happen. But again, that, that, that doesn't mean that we give up being winsome in our conduct, gracious in our dealings with other people, uh, forbearing to a, to a painful degree. Loving in the way Jesus was loved. And yet with a realization that his ways are not our ways and his ways are not the ways of the world. And one of the things we've got to do um, just at the very outset of our walk with Jesus and we've got to revisit from time to time is just take sort of extracting from our hearts any affection for the things of the world or admiration of the world so that when the pressure comes, when the temptation to conform comes, that we remember the words of Jesus, that we knew this is part of the package and that we don't fall away. You know, it's one of the, one of the most sobering passages of Scripture to me is Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9 through the end of 2 Timothy. It's Paul's last known letter, 2 Timothy is. And he's, asking, he's urging Timothy, come to me soon. Do your best to come to me soon. He's got a number of things he hopes uh, that will result from that. But, but he lists the number of people who have abandoned him. In the latter part of his ministry, as he's winding down, he's getting ready to die, he's going he's gonna to be executed. And he knows it. And among the people he mentions, he says, Demas, in love with this present world, has left me and gone to Thessalonica. That pressure is not new on Christians. The attraction to the world is not new. The desire not to be hated and misrepresented and called things that you are not, that's not new either. But it's not going away. And, uh, and again, it might not be such a pressing issue in our immediate experience as evangelicals, American evangelicals living in, you know, 2022. Uh, but it is true for the church more universally. And if not, uh, for the grace of God intervening on the direction we are going in now, it will be that will be increasingly the experience probably of our 
uh, children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And yet, God will not uh, be dethroned by any of that. He will not cease to work through any of that. He will not cease to be glorified through all of that. And so the exhortation to us um, is to hold fast in a hostile world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you uh, for saying the things that we need to hear even when it takes us into territory we wouldn't necessarily like to even have to ponder. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that we are, as Christians, always living in a spiritual warfare, a spiritual battle, and so you, you tell us things that arm us and prepare us for battle, not for vacation. You haven't just told us nice words, uh, encouraging, positive practical things for living a cushy life but things that really equip us for the spiritual conflict that we're in and we just acknowledge God that we we need your empowerment to be people who live fully like Jesus who love the way Jesus did who talked the way Jesus did who noticed people the way Jesus did and yet could continue to do that even in the face of hostility from the world. Lord, would you teach us to be those kind of people and be glorified through it. In Jesus' name, amen.